Well, I'd like to turn your attention to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. This is one of the most phenomenal chapters in the whole Bible. It's the pinnacle of the book of Revelation. It's also one of the longest chapters, and I've got 35 minutes to share about it. I think you'll find some things in here not only very encouraging, but maybe even a bit surprising. But let's read it first, and then we'll pray and ask God to help us understand. Chapter 21 of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. Praise God for that. Or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts and idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. It me- he measured the city with the rod and found it to be twelve thousand stadia in length, and as wide and as high as it is long. He measured its walls, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, crystallite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, and the seventh, the eleventh, jessam, and the twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each made of a single pearl. The great, city of the, uh, the great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I didn't have in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp, the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Father, we are delighted to know you. And God, I can't believe what you have waiting for us. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. It's unspeakable. It's, 
It's like a blind man trying to, to hear a description of what a beautiful sunset is like. How can we possibly understand and possibly comprehend the beauty of what's awaiting us? But God, in this chapter, you give us so much information. And yet, God, we'd love to have more. But you've given us what we need. Father, we look forward to that day. And I pray now that as I attempt by your grace and by your strength and by your spirit to teach this, Lord, I pray that you would fill my mouth and fill our hearts with a longing for the things of the eternal kingdom of God. We ask that you would be glorified in this time that we have now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word created in Genesis, in the Hebrew, is bara. There are actually two words in the Hebrew for creating or making. One is bara and the other is asa. Asa means to form out of existing material. But bara is a very unique and special word because it means to create out of nothing. As people were able to do some remarkable things with material in our hands. But there is no man that can create something out of nothing. But that's exactly what God has the power to do. It's the power that he, uh, that he used to create the universe, the heavens, and the earth. Now, interestingly, in prophecy... And in this passage as well, we are told that God once again will create bara, a new heaven and a new earth. We're told this in Isaiah chapter 65, that God says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. And I'm looking forward to it. I have to tell you, when I, uh, I got a, the chance to speak with John just uh, a few hours before he died, and we were talking about the Lord and had a nice conversation, and I told him, I'm envious, John. I'm envious. I would, in a second, if it was God's will, I'd go right now. I'd love to be with him. I'd much rather be with the Lord than, than to be anywhere else in all of creation. And our brother John is now with him in God's heavenly creation. Free, no death, no mourning, no sorrow. Just absolute joy in God's presence. When God made the earth, He made it to be a place of great joy for His people. But of course we know what happened. Sin came in because of our own sinful choices. And because of that, we have inherited a sinful nature from Adam. And that has corrupted everything that God has made. It has made everything that He designed to be a beauty of, of grace, of wonder, into something that has been destructive and damaging and evil. But John tells us in the latter part of chapter 20, in verse 11, that when this great white throne judgment will take place, that earth and heaven will flee from His presence and they will be no more. That that is what is going to happen to this present earth. But he tells us he's going to create a new one. And we, John tells us in verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth came. And he saw it. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. So God is going to give us and create something of tremendous beauty that's uncorrupted by sin. You know, I thought about this a lot as I prepared the sermon and I really do think that our limited scope of understanding of what this is like is very much like me trying to tell somebody that was born blind what a sunset is like or a sunrise. I mean, how do you describe to someone who has never seen the beauty of the hues and the differences in the texture of the clouds and the colors? How do you explain that to somebody? It's not possible. You can make attempts at it, but the beauty of what a sunset is really like for someone who's blind is something that they'll have to wait to see when they get in the kingdom of God if they know the Lord. And in reality, what we have here in this text is just a skeletal framework of what heaven is going to be like. And it's described in ways that are, are matching things that we attach great value to, to gems and gold and precious stones. 
But that time will come and when we get there, it's going to just blow our minds. It's going to be overshadowed by every hope and expectation we had. It will be better than anything you can imagine. It will be worth it all. It will make the pain and the suffering of this life seem like nothing. And the Bible says when that time comes and you're in His presence, all of these things will be forgotten forever. And you will be caught up in the most wondrous, incredible relationship with your Savior and your God and your groom and it will all be over. And I, for one, am going to say hallelujah. hallelujah. I have to tell you. I lo- oh, yeah, sorry. I got, I, I'm going. I forgot. Hallelujah. hallelujah. You know, I have to tell you something. There's hardly a day that goes by as much as I love ministry and as much as I love you and I love the Lord. I get tired. I get tired of watching people struggle in the church. I get tired of watching people be devastated by drugs and alcohol. I get tired of watching marriages fall apart. I get tired of watching people sin against one another and be sinned against. I get tired of watching corruption in the world and watching politics. I get tired of hearing about shootings and killings and death. I'm tired. I'm full of the joy of the Lord, but I tell you, I'm tired. God gives me every bit of strength I need for every day, but I'm wanting to go home. I'm wanting to be with God. If I had my choice, I'd be there now. But His timing is perfect. And His timing will be perfect for me and it will be perfect for you. But my goal is the kingdom of God. My home is the kingdom of God. My life is the kingdom of God. And for every believer that trusts their life to God, it should be exactly the same. That our everything, our hope, our future, our desire, our affections are on the kingdom of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This first heaven and earth, fortunately, will pass away. It's interesting that John says there won't be any sea any longer. That's pretty remarkable considering 70% of our globe is made up of bodies of water. We need water. Evidently, in the future, we won't need water. Our whole hydrologic cycle is based on these oceans that purify and cleanse pollution out of the atmosphere and out of the, out of the waters and provide fresh water for us to drink. I mean, we'd be dead without the oceans. But in the future, we're going to have a glorified body that obviously doesn't need the oceans. It's kind of a bummer. That means no surf. But trust me, those of you that love surf and you think if there's no surf, I'm not going, trust me, you're going to be occupied with things of far greater joy and pleasure than anything that this world offers. Now in verse 2, John says that he saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So we've got this holy city coming down out of heaven. Now this is, you know, a lot of us, I have to tell you, this may be a major adjustment in your thinking about what heaven is like. Because when we think of heaven, we think of out there somewhere, up there somewhere, that you know, heaven is you know, somewhere out there. Well, you're right, it is somewhere out there, but it's not forever going to be out there. The Bible says that His kingdom and His glory in this great city of Jerusalem is actually going to descend from heaven and be planted on this re- renewed and recreated earth. Is this mind-blowing? Well, there's more. <laughs> Revelation 3.12 tells us from the very words of Jesus himself, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, is going to come down out of heaven from my God to earth. What did Jesus say in John 4.14.2? When his disciples, when he was praying with them, they were in the upper room and he was letting them know, hey, I'm about to head out of here. And they were all concerned and distraught, understandably. And, And Jesus said, look, don't worry. I'm going away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you that you may be where I am forever. He's preparing that place for those who call on His name, for you and for me. He's been working on it for 2,000 years. And as so many people have said before, if it took God six days to create the earth and the heavens and the universe, which we can't even fathom, What in the world will heaven be like if he's been working on it for over 2,000 years? A place of wonder and glory that's 
unmatched by anything we can even think or hope for. That's what he's creating for us. And he says that that new city, it will be the capital of God's kingdom. We're not going to be limited to this capital. We're going to be able to go throughout the universe and all over the globe. But the Bible says that this capital city that we'll talk about more in a few minutes is going to descend and be planted on earth and it will become the the central gathering place and the place of residence for those who have called on the name of Jesus and who have been saved by faith. And we're going to live there and you're going to live there forever in the presence of God. This is just... I, my words, I'm so sorry that I don't have the capacity to explain this. You just have to let your imagination go and let it be guided by God in what He's got for us. This city is not new. We're told in Hebrews that Abraham was looking forward to this city. He said, uh, the, the scripture says of Abraham that he didn't live for this life. He didn't consider himself a citizen of this kingdom, but he said he was looking for a better kingdom, one whose builder and architect was God. The Bible says that we too are to look forward to that, to an enduring city, to the city that's coming. The scripture talks about this extensively, and I I wish I had more time, but I'll just say briefly that in Hebrews chapter 8, we are told that the temple, all of the temple, uh, the, the tabernacle in the desert with the Israelites, the temple of Solomon, all of these temples were formed and shaped and designed by God. He gave them very, very specific measurements. Why? Because God himself says that this earthly temple is a copy and a shadow of the heavenly temple. In other words, that heavenly temple is already in existence and has been in existence from the beginning. And God, in a very remarkable way, allowed man to make a replica of it on earth and allow his presence to reside in that replica so that we can have face-to-face communion with God. Because he loves us. I, can't, I don't understand it. I don't, I don't even claim to know why he loves us as he does. But the fact is, is that he does. And he planted his tabernacle in the desert. And then he had Solomon build a temple that his Shekinah glory, the presence of God, would be there in the midst of his people. But one day, at the end of all things, this heavenly city, this temple of God, this new Jerusalem that we have seen shadows of and copies of and replicas of over the years in terms of human history, will finally, the the real deal is going to come down. And it will be the capital of God's new creation and His new world. John says it's like a bride. Well, some of you say, I thought the church was the bride. Well, the church is the bride. The new Jerusalem is the bride. This new city is the bride. It's all the bride. We are the bride. We are the inhabitants of this new city. And the scriptures refer to this city and to the people who who, uh, are redeemed, who take up residence in it, as the bride of Christ. Coming down pure, holy, before God to have this wondrous relationship. You know, I, I think to myself, there is no more intimate relationship or more lasting, permanent relationship than the marriage relationship. I mean, out of all the types of relationships that God could have used for an illustration of what it is to know God, He chose marriage. Do you know who came up with the idea of marriage? God. Do you know why He came up with the idea? Was it so that we could procreate and so that we could have a companion next to us? No. That's part of it. But do you know what the real reason was? Is so that we would be a reflection of God's relationship with His church and with His people. You are a shadow. You are a type. You are a a replica, if you're married, of that heavenly relationship that God is preparing for those who call on Him and who love Him. This is... I'm going to say remarkable a lot today, probably. Forgive me. Maybe I should be saying hallelujah more often during this message. But I don't have... have, Hallelujah! You go, Mike. All right. That's right. Mike and I just became friends on Friday.
Okay, we got you. Mike, I got it all covered. I got it all covered. I was on the phone and I got the whole problem taken care of and I'll talk to you about it afterwards. Mike's a good brother from Oahu. Good. All right. All right. If you don't let me talk, I'm not going to get through my sermon. So, Mike, you keep worshiping God, but do it quietly so that we can keep going. Okay, man, you go, but quietly. Okay, okay. Mike and I just met and became friends, uh, I think, on Friday. So anyway, he's a good brother, loves the Lord. Um, Anyway, uh, let's see, where was I? We're talking about the bride. Now, there are several proclamations that God gives regarding uh, this new kingdom. He says in verse 3, "...that I heard a loud sound from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God." So we find that you know, God is communicating some very clear and unmistakable truths here is that He is going to take up residence with us. I find it interesting that God, He's absolutely independent of creation. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. I know that comes as a big shock and a, just a jolt to some of you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need any of us. And yet, because of His intense and committed love toward His people that He created, for who knows what reason... It's in his heart and in his mind that he loves us so deeply that he longs to dwell among us to have intimate, personal communion and fellowship with us. There's a passage in Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, verse 11, where we find Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. It's a, it's a pretty frightening dream for him and I don't have time to describe the dream. But what happens after he has a dream is he goes to his prophets, the, the, uh, the sorcerers, in his, uh, the Chaldeans or sorcerers in his court uh, who are kind of soothsayers and they're not believers but they su- supposedly are able to tell the king the future and to interpret dreams, etc. And he goes to them and he says, you know, I, want, I had a terrible nightmare the other night and I want you to tell me uh, the interpretation. And they said, fine king, tell us what the dream was. And he says, oh no. I don't even believe you guys anymore. You guys will tell me anything I want to hear. You, you guys are scammers. And if you're not a scammer, then prove it. And the way you can prove it is you tell me my dream. If you really know God, if you really hear voices from above, then you tell me what the dream is. And then you tell me the interpretation. And by the way, if you don't... They were frantic. Because of course they knew they were dead men. Because they knew they didn't hear from anybody. They were making this stuff up. They were hearing from demons at best and at worst they were just scamming this king. Listen to what their words are. They come back to the king and they say, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And listen to this. And they do not live among men. Oh, really? One God does. The only true God does. Not only has he lived among men, but he is living among men and he will live among men again. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, we find the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, having direct, intimate fellowship with Adam and Eve. That was God's design from the beginning. That fellowship, of course, was interrupted by sin. But God didn't give up. He designed the tabernacle and gave that design to Moses and they put, built it so that he once again could take up residence. Listen to what he says in Leviticus 26 regarding this temple. He says, I will put my dwelling place among you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Do you kind of get the idea that God wants to be with us? Amen. Jesus. Who was he? God in the flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. John chapter 1. The New Testament saints in John 14, 23, were told if we love Him and we obey His teaching, that the Father will love us and He will come and make His home with us. Take up residence in our hearts. Man, He's determined. I don't know. I would have given up a long time ago. I would have said after the first efforts where this, you know, there was no response and they were just like, oh, so what? He's living with us. I would have been like, man, I, I don't want to live with people that don't want me. But God doesn't give up. 
The Bible says in Ezekiel 37:27 that my dwelling will be with them in the future and I will be their God and they will be my people and the name of my city will be called from that time on the Lord is there. That's going to be the name of the city. The Lord is there. That's the emphasis he wants us to know is that he is going to be right there in our midst. He will be with them. They will be his people and he will be their God. You know, right now in our lives, the relationship that we have with God is a beautiful thing. He communicates us primarily through His Word and we communicate back to Him primarily through prayer. But I can't see God. I can't touch God. I can't be held by God. I don't hear His audible voice every time I go. I've never heard His audible voice. Some people have, but I've never heard His audible voice. I hear His quiet spirit speaking in my heart and He speaks to me often. But I've never heard His audible voice. I don't really know what He looks like. I've got some descriptions in the Bible that I don't really know how big He is. I don't know if He's going to be, you know, some towering giant or my size. or I don't, I don't know. We don't know. But I know one thing is that my fellowship with Him and if those of you who love Jesus are fellowshipping with Him in the Word and in prayer and in worship, oh, I don't want to be anywhere else. I don't want to do anything else. I, I know I, I maybe some people find me somewhat boring. Maybe don't want to be around me because I'm too Jesus-oriented. That's fine. But that's all I want to do. I don't want to live for anything else. I don't want to do anything else. My greatest joy is in being in His presence. And yet it's so limited. But the time is going to come when we're going to see Him openly and visibly in our midst. And we're going to be hugged by Him and we're going to be able to respond to Him and He's going to speak to us and He's going to touch us and He's going to comfort us and He's going to know everything about us and He's going to absolutely love and accept us. And we will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye and we will become like Him. All these things are waiting for us. All of these things are coming. And the Bible says in verse 4 that He's going to wipe away every tear. Isn't this interesting? The very first thing that He does for us is wipe away every tear. You know what's interesting to me? Is that the word tear is singular. Why doesn't it say He's going to wipe away tears? I think because He wants us to know that every single tear will be wiped away. Every pain will be comforted. Every sorrow will be turned to joy and we will remember them no more. I just can't imagine. How is he going to have... I guess we have eternity to take care of all this business. Wiping the tears of literally billions of people. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The old order has passed away. It's a reference to sin, to Satan, to our fallen nature, to suffering, to death. Everything associated with this present world, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7.31, will pass away. It's going to be finished. I, can you even grasp that? I can't even... I've been thinking about this all week and longer. I can't... I can't... My mind is just... It's like I've got marbles rolling around in my head and I'm trying to organize them and I can't get them together to finally understand what it's like to not be dealing with suffering or pain. We have these little windows of time in our life when everything's right. And the rest of life is full of difficulty and challenge. But the Bible says a time is coming when there won't be any difficulties and our work will be over. And I want to encourage you and I want to exhort you, live for Jesus. Pour yourselves out for the things that last and matter. If necessary, exhaust yourselves in the will of God. God will give you the strength every day. You may not have enough for next week today, but you'll have enough for next week when next week comes. But give yourselves to things that last because all of the difficulty and all of the challenges and all of the sorrow and all of the disappointments in life will be forever erased and God will have for you in His kingdom, in this heavenly dwelling that is going to come down to earth, a reward that will blow you away that you can't even imagine. It will be worth it all. Now in verse 5, there are a series of proclamations that God makes. The first is He says, I'm making everything new. He is making everything new. He's doing it now and He's doing it in the future. 
But in the meantime, I'm telling you, right now he's making things new even now. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. He's doing new things even now. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men and women globally are coming to Christ every day. And God is doing something new in their lives. He's preparing a new people for that new creation, for that new city, that temple, that Jerusalem that he's making. And so all around us, although we see death and dying in our presence, all around us there's newness springing up that's going to be springing up to eternal life and will be a part of those final days. Second thing that he says in verse 6 is he says it's done. What's he talking about? What's done? This new creation. The scripture says a number of times it's done. Jesus on the cross said it's finished. The angel said when it came to the seventh bowl of the seventh last plague, it's done. All the judgment is done. And now we have Jesus saying it is done. The new creation. There's going to come a time when it's all over. I, you know, I've had so many experiences that I'm sure you can relate where you, for years, work hard towards something. Maybe it's a college education or maybe it's, uh, you know some sort of a dream you have or, or maybe it's even the death of a friend or a loved one and all of a sudden it's, it's upon you and it seemed like it would never come. I thought the year 2000 would never come and now it's like it's already, we're like on, we're going on, man. I've forgotten the year 2000 and I'm moving forward and I don't, I don't think about, oh, 2000. But when I was in high school I thought I'd be dead before that ever happened. But here we are. And there's going to come a time when the Lamb of God is going to proclaim, It is done! And we're going to say, Hallelujah! Hallelujah. And we're going to glory in Him and it's going to be finished and it will all be over and we'll be in His presence. Can't wait. He goes on and he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Just the Greek alphabet. It's the first letter and the last. It's It's like saying, I'm the A to the Z. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm everything in between. I'm the initiator of everything and I'm the completer of everything. And then he says three things that I find remarkable. The first is that he says, to him who is thirsty I will give drink without cost. Just can't believe it. That he's so generous. That he's so giving and so loving. He wants to give you drink without cost. He wants to fill you. He doesn't want you to be He doesn't want to be doling out little cups of water like this to you and say, make it last. You've only got one for three days. No. The scripture says it's an abundant overflow that it comes into our lives. It's the Holy Spirit. John tells us about this extensively. This living water that he offered to the woman at the well. And he says it'll bubble up in your life and overflow to a great fountain. And that's the life that God has for the believer. I'm telling you something, if you're not experiencing that abundant life, you need to draw closer to Jesus. Because He promises it in this life, but a lot of Christians struggle and they, they settle for so much less and they just barely squeak by in life and they've got problems galore and they, they wonder why God isn't meeting them, but they don't come to God. They're not having fellowship with God. And I don't say this as a rebuke or a correction, but as a word of exhortation. If you want to have living water flowing out of you night and day, not that there aren't problems in life, but if you want real living water in this life, if you want to experience an abundance in this life, then draw close to Jesus. Stay in His Word. Pray. Fellowship. Worship. Do what now what you're going to be doing for eternity. We're only going to be doing a little bit of it, but a little bit is better than nothing. And if you get a little bit of Jesus, you'll be amazed at what He can do with your life. It says it's without cost, it's free. Because of Christ. You know, I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, we're all drinking something. We're all thirsty here. Everyone that's watching this program is thirsty. The world is thirsty. There are two sources that you can drink from. The first is what we've talked about. You've either got to go to the living water of Jesus or you go to the broken cisterns of man. Those are the only two choices. You either go to Jesus Christ who says, I am the living water, or you find an artificial, phony, fake, inadequate substitute and you drink there. I kind of imagine, you know what it's like? It's like the difference between going to an artesian well that just 
springing up with this incredibly cool water and then going out into the parking lot and find some puddle, dirty puddle, and getting down on your knees and sucking up. That's kind of what the difference is like spiritually. I'm, I'm sorry, it's what God just gave me. <laughs> Didn't plan on saying that. But that's what it's like. And actually, if I could tell you something else, it's probably worse than that, but I don't want to go there. <laughs> Hallelujah! But I didn't go there. I have some control, not much, but a little bit. Jeremiah 2.13, listen to this verse. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. That's the first sin. They forsook God. They said, we don't want your water. We don't even like your water. We don't like what your water requires. You're making us come to your water. We don't want to go to your water. We want to find our own water. We don't want you controlling our lives. We don't want to bow the knee to you. We don't want to be dependent on you. We're going to find our own water. And so the scripture says they dug their own cisterns, their own wells, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is what the world is doing. And I, I, I grieve for the world. I grieve for my unbelieving friends. I grieve as well for Christians who are not drawing deeply from the water of Jesus Christ. There are many Christians like this that I pray that there are none in our church or very few. But there are many believers even who don't draw deeply from the waters in their relationship with God and they still, even though they've received the water of Christ and they've had a drink of it and they've tasted of it, they still are down on their knees lapping up dirty water from parking lots. God has offered us so much more. So we're all drinking. It's just a matter of what source we're getting our water from. But God's living water is available and it will bubble up and spring over into eternal life and will give you the most incredible, on-fire, passionate walk with God you can imagine. God doesn't need you, but God wants to use you. God wants to bless you. God wants to enrich you. And you don't have to wait for the heavenly kingdom to hit earth to experience it. You can experience shadows of it and a foretaste of it. It's kind of like appetizers. You know, it's not the full course, but we've got appetizers. And it's all over the table. I don't know about you, sometimes I prefer appetizers even over the main course because sometimes I don't know why they're better. Um, But anyway, it's like right now we have these appetizers and God has given it to us, but something far greater is coming. But you can taste now. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just like in my heart for the, in the worst way I want this for you. I'm experiencing a part of it and I want more of it. And when I rub shoulders with men and women like you who are on fire for Christ, it inspires me. And I need that. I need you. And you need me and we need one another. But I'm exhorting you and I'm just in the... From the depths of my heart, I'm crying out to God that the Holy Spirit even now would give you a thirst for righteousness. The Bible says in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled, not just in the kingdom by and by, but now. And every one of us need to be filled and we're longing for it and we desire it and we want it and Jesus is saying, here it is. Take. Take it. It's life. In verse 7, God says that he who overcomes will inherit all this, all of these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. And I'm reminded of 1 John verse, chapter 3, verse 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. <laughs> if you know Jesus and you're a woman, you're his daughter. The perfect father and the perfect daughter because of Christ. If you're a man, the Bible says that you are his son. The perfect father and perfect sons because of Christ. And you are going to inherit with Christ everything coming to Christ. He's going to share it with you. He's going to let you be a partner in it and a partaker of it. Now verse 8 says something quite disturbing. 
says that the wicked will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is a second death, which we already read about at the last part of chapter 20. It's a literal place. It's not symbolic. There is going to be a place and is a place called the lake of fire. He's got a list of six character qualities or six behaviors. And I want to say before I mention these that lest anyone feel that who's received Christ as their Savior and genuinely has responded by faith that acts of these kinds probably all of us have committed at one time or another maybe even as believers this is not a litmus test for getting into heaven the whole point of this passage is saying who's going to be excluded so that we know that when we get to heaven we're not going to be dealing with this kind of stuff the first is the cowardly these are people who are unwilling to take a stand for Jesus they compromise maybe during the final days of of the tribulation they, they take the mark of the beast these are those who are shamed in circles of friends and maybe even deny Christ when they're saying don't, don't you go to church aren't you kind of into that Jesus thing the cowardly the unbelieving those who lack a saving faith in Christ they, they do lots of good works they, boy they're, they're involved they do everything everybody counts on them but they've never really truly put their faith in Jesus Christ the sexually immoral these are those who participate in sexual activity outside of marriage God condemns that there is no way around it I have, I've had people talk to me about you know every which way trying to convince me that a certain type of what, what the Bible refers to as sexual immorality which is inappropriate sexual union with somebody that's not your spouse that it's okay it's not okay it'll never be okay this is God's judgment not mine the sexually immoral will be thrown into the lake of fire. These are people who practice as a habit, a lifestyle, immorality. People who practice the magic arts, those who use mind-altering drugs primarily for the purpose of worship or transcending their own bodies to experience another reality. But I believe as well as I've said before, is my mic going off and on again? Is that okay? Okay. Is that, is that yes, it's going off and on? Or yes, it's going off and on? Okay. Well, maybe you can leave me both on here and I'll use this one too. Um, these guys are so good in the back. As I said before, I, 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 uh, I really do believe that the body of Christ should be free from drugs. We have a real problem on this island with uh, Pacalolo, with cocaine, with all different types of drugs, methamphetamines. And uh, I want the church to be free. I think we should be free. We shouldn't be enslaved to anything, including alcohol. I think alcohol is, uh, is something that the body of Christ has to be very careful of and very uh, wary of because, uh, as I said before, the Bible doesn't uh, um, in any way condemn drinking, but being an alcoholic or drinking to the point of drunkenness is condemned. And we just don't, why even get close to that? Why even participate in anything like that? Why even, why even walk the line? The Bible says that we're not to be a part of that. Idolaters, those who give supreme devotion to something or someone other than God, and then finally, liars, those who profess to follow Christ but don't really live for Him. Those who are liars and deceive are following the master deceiver, the father of lies, Satan himself. Now, I'm looking at the time and uh, looking at my notes. Okay, on we go. I want to talk to you about the construction of the city. I'm going to skip a few things. Um, and I want to go to, um, let's see. I want to take us all the way to the construction and its walls in verse 12. We find in this construction some very interesting things that are mentioned. Um, first, that this wall that was there in the city had 12 gates with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And I just, I wish I could talk to you about twelve. You kind of get the idea that twelve is important here. I don't have time to talk about twelve. But what I do want to talk about is the fact that just to simply make an observation that we find the names of the tribes of Israel on the gates and then we find that the foundation of this wall and of this temple is built on the twelve apostles. I, my point is, is that we find the old and the new coming together. Israel is not forsaken. Israel is not absorbed into the church. 
But there is a special place in the kingdom of God for Israel, just as there is for the church. But the Bible says that as the Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming of Christ and were saved by faith in the promise of God, in the same manner the New Testament saints, like ourselves, are looking back on the cross and are saved by faith. And so together, both looking forward and looking back are saved at that point of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who paid for our sins. Now in verse 15, we're told the measurements of the city. And I'm going to kind of go through this quickly, but the city, because a lot of people think, okay, this, the city's going to come down and, uh, and land on earth. How is it possibly going to accommodate all the saints? You ever thought about that? How big is this city going to be? Well, we know from the measurements how big it is. It's 12,000 cubits, and it's a cube. It's three-dimensional. It's fundamentally about the size of the moon. That's how big it is. Not just the surface, but the entire cubic measurement of the moon. Now, to put this in perspective in terms of the population of the earth, people have estimated that from the time of Adam until now, we've had probably about 40 billion people that have lived on earth. That's a high estimate, but I'm going high so that we can make sure that we all have room in this new kingdom. So 40 billion people. Now, in the millennial reign of Christ, we know that the environment there will be absolutely per perfection and people are going to live possibly the whole duration of the millennial reign and have maybe hundreds of children. So it's possible that there will be maybe 40 billion people during that millennial reign of Christ. That's 80 billion. And then we need to take into account those that were miscarriages. They were creations of God. They'll be in the Lord, with the Lord. And those that died in, in childbirth or at a young age, maybe 20 billion. So we've got 100 billion people that have possibly, potentially lived on the earth by the time of God's coming. Now, they're not all believers. Let's say 20% are believers. That's probably, maybe realistic, maybe it'll be less. Maybe it'll be a little bit more. But that's 20 billion people. Now, how are you going to fit 20 billion people? I mean, we've got 6 billion people on the earth and some people say it's too crowded. But how are you going to fit 20 billion people on the earth? Well, if you only use 25% of this heavenly city based on the measurements we've been given, it's 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles wide. That's big. If 25% of it is used for our mansions, okay, because we're going to have mansions. You're looking forward to that, right? And my kids love talking about the mansions. But we're looking forward to those mansions and they're coming. If only 25% of all of this heavenly city are for mansions, that's going to leave a lot of room left for parks, I know, you think there are parks there? I think there are going to be parks there. I think there are going to be public buildings. There are going to be gathering places for all of us to get together and have incredible times of worship. There's going to be a lot of activity going on. Only 25% of all of this new Jerusalem. Do you know what that leaves every single individual with on average? 71 cubic acres. You think you can live on one acre by yourself? I could. Can you live on 71 acres by yourself? Would that be alright with you? Cubic acres? Not just flat acres, cubic acres? Three-dimensional acres? Well, that's what, based on the measurements that we have in Scripture, that's what's available for the believer. Now, I have to tell you, too, that this is average. I do believe that God says that He has rewards for His saints. Some are going to come in as, as though by fire. They will have received Christ, but they will have done nothing for the kingdom of God. They will have not served God. They will have not honored God or really brought any glory to God. They won't have been a testimony to God. And the Bible says they're going to make it in, but I don't think they're going to have quite the same reward that someone else who, who's been faithful and who has served and laid down their life for the kingdom. But nonetheless, on average, that is a lot of, that's a lot of territory. That's a big piece of property. Now, we're told that the wall around it is 200 feet thick, and I'm going to go right on to, oh, the pearly gates. I've got to talk about the pearly gates. There are pearly gates. That's amazing. Huh? Only Peter's not going to be there guarding it. It's going to be an angel. Why are they guarding it? To keep anything evil from entering it. No longer will we have to deal with evil in the world. Now, we're told that something is missing in verse 22. What is that something? It's the temple. For the first time, there's no temple and we're told because the Lamb will be its temple. In the Old Testament, we had the temple, that Holy of Holies, that inner sanctum of God's presence. It was called Naos. That was the Shekinah glory. That's where only one man, the priest, could go only once a year to make offering. 
The Bible says that the New Testament believer has now become the naos of God. You are a temple of His Holy Spirit. What kind of people should we be if this is true, which we know it is? But in the future, God and His Son themselves will be the temple. We're not going to need the sun or the moon. The nations are going to come to the light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. How so? Well, I'll tell you. Just as the 24 elders, what are they casting down? Does anybody remember? They're casting down their crowns. Who gave them those crowns? God, as a reward. These kings of the nations, these men and women who have been following Jesus Christ and obedient to Him, they're going to come with the wealth of the nations. Somehow, God is going to distribute to them the wealth of the nations. And what are they going to do with it? Hoard it? No. They're going to bring it into the kingdom of God. And they're going to lay it before His throne and they're going to bless Him with it because they're going to acknowledge all glory and honor and majesty belong to you and to you alone. Praise you, Lord. We worship you and honor you and magnify your name. Boy, I encourage you, make sure that as you serve the Lord that you're serving as unto the Lord, not unto men. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart so that when you enter that kingdom, you have riches and wealth to bring before Him that He will give you that you in turn will be able to lay before His feet in His honor. No evil will enter it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. No one who does evil will enter it. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we are going to live there forever. We are going to be in His presence. That holy city will come down finally. We're not going to be limited to that city. I believe we're going to be zipping all over the universe and beyond. We're going to have free access to any corner of the world. We're going to be serving God. But this city is going to be a central gathering place where it's just going to be rocking day and night. Talking about the city that never sleeps. This is it. Because there's light all the time and we won't need sleep and we're going to be serving God and we're going to be ecstatic. We won't get tired. We won't get weary. There's no more pain anymore and we'll be there with Him forever. Can I encourage you in something? Make your life count. This is going to be over so quickly. It's over in a moment and it will continue forever. Make this life count. Draw close in your fellowship with God. Live for Him and He will reward you eternally. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. Thank You for these patient people. And we pray, God, that You'd be honored and glorified by all that we do and say. Let Your kingdom come and Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are glorying in it and we are looking forward to it and we want to have intimate fellowship with You now. Holy Spirit, draw us close, ever closer to You this week that we might know You and love You and do Your will according to Your purposes and Your grace. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.